When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, I am of course Tom Fordyce and before you enjoy today's excellent Mickey Mantle episode, let me tell you what would happen if you were to visit spreadthatfire.com. What would happen is you would find our remarkable range of brand new fire merchandise, which includes t-shirts, bookmarks, signed posters, signed by me and Katie, and of course a tea towel bearing the words damp cloth utopia. What more encouragement could you need? Spreadthatfire.com. Go. This is a crowd podcast. This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. Little Rock, Mickey Mantle. Katie, don't make that baseball face just because we're back on baseball once again. (laughs) Hello and welcome to episode 58 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that's a number one song that's a skip and a trip around the story of the post-war world. Our guru, Billy Joel. Our mission, to feed our heads. Our pledge, together we will learn without ever feeling like we're actually learning. I'm Tom Fordyce. I'm Katie Puckerick. Katie, shall we toast our toes around the fire? Yeah, let's do it. I, I want to take that pledge that you that, that you mentioned. So uh, today we're talking about another baseball player. Thanks, Billy. This is a song written by Billy Joel, and Billy does have a special enthusiasm for America's sport, and that is the ball of base. <laughs> <laughs> and today, KT, because he's treated us on three previous occasions to baseball superstars, we have Mickey Mantle. Um, what were your preconceptions or indeed knowledge of Mickey Mantle? I don't have any. I have no preconceptions. I, uh, who were the other baseball players that we talked about? Let's just recap. Okay. Roy Campanella. Roy Campanella. Brooklyn's got a winning team. Yeah. And of course, Dodgers. the great... Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio. So, uh, Mickey Mantle, just another one in this lineup. A man holding a bat, uh, wearing a big cartoony leather glove. Yeah, I am just spitballing here. I don't know. You, you're the sports guy. You're you're the guru of uh, athletic endeavors. What do you know about this situation? <laughs> well, bearing in mind that I was a sports writer in Britain, um, I never, ever covered baseball. But I think a lot of these baseball superstars pop up in culture in other ways, don't yes, they? Yes, they do. And that's how you hear about them in the same ways that I first heard about Joe DiMaggio through Simon and Garfunkel, Mrs. Oh. Robinson. So I knew a little bit about Mickey. Um, I didn't realise what a tragic tale it would turn out to be. But Katie, uh, we're getting towards the end before we've got to the beginning. Yes, we are. And thank goodness we are about to wheel on the journalist, broadcaster, author of several books about baseball, former baseball player, and my personal baseball Sherpa, Josh (laughs) Chetwind. Hey, how are you guys? Pretty good, pretty good. Now, what I appreciate about you, Josh, is that you possess enough personal discipline to not roll your eyes, (laughs) (laughs) I think, when I ask lunk-headed questions about a sport that still to this day remains on the periphery of my comprehension. Um, But 
In my research on Mickey Mantle, and he's quite a compelling figure for a lot of different reasons, mostly because, oh my gosh, he seemed to completely capture his fans' imagination and hearts, and he galvanized their devotion. Josh, what was it about Mickey Mantle as a player, as a man that triggered this adoration? Because like little kids and grown men alike were starstruck by him. Young fans would even adopt fake limps to mimic their hero's injuries. Like what was this guy's magic? Well, Katie, it would be difficult for Billy Joel to write a song in which he referenced baseball, particularly post-war baseball, without mentioning Mickey Mantle. Because in many ways, he encapsulated what baby boomers became. So the people who were born right after the war, they wanted to be Mickey Mantle for a number of reasons. And, And some of them they probably didn't even realize because Mickey Mantle was sort of the first player who embodied the me generation. He was a guy who would have fun on the side. I mean, he was a huge partier. I mean, off the field exploits were almost as legendary as what he did on the field. He was handsome. It, it makes me think a lot of that show, Mad Men, if you remember that, oh, yeah. starring John Hamm, mm-hmm. where everything on the facade seemed to be so perfect, so buttoned up, but underneath it was a complete wreck. And yeah. there was so much performance success when you talk about the facade, but behind the scenes, it was all sort of falling apart. So, so Mantle, as, as you pointed out, a tragic figure, but also a legendary figure. He was a tremendous baseball player. He hit 536 home runs, which when he retired was amongst the most ever in the history of the game. He was just a handsome guy. He was the guy who you saw who looked like the boy next door, who you'd want your daughter to date. You did not want your daughter to date Mickey Mantle. (laughs) I mean, he was a guy who who was, you know, not not the type of figure you wanted uh, your lady to go out with. But he he was just an amazing player and a great athlete, uh, but just really plagued with demons. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know that at the time uh, his fans would have known about the the demon-plagued side of things, but certainly the boy next door, uh, that was a big draw. Like, I guess almost that idea that that could be me, you know? And there was a comment under a YouTube video of Mickey Mantle. Somebody wrote, Mantle is part of the American myth, strong as a horse from either side of the plate, from the heartland, great name, looked like the boy next door, carried himself like a warrior, one of the most compelling ball players of all time. It seems, Josh, like people just sort of fell in love with him. Yeah. And I mean, sticking with the theme that he was a representative of, of an era, again, he was a little older, he was born in uh, 1931. Uh, so he wasn't a baby boomer, but why he was a baby boomer. And yet you really have to look at Mickey Mantle in comparison to another person we talked about, Joe DiMaggio, who was his predecessor in center field, the position uh, that both of them played for the New York Yankees, the greatest team uh, in the history of baseball. DiMaggio, in terms of his life, uh, was a guy who had a lot of demons himself, but really kept them under wraps. You know, he was very conscious about playing the game right. Whereas uh, with Mickey Mantle, he was a guy, you know, as we said, it was fun-loving, but also what was interesting about him and differentiated him from Joe DiMaggio was that he was built to be a baseball player. His father, Mutt Mantle, they came from Oklahoma, and his father was a miner, a family of miners. He worked in uh, the zinc and lead mines, but he would come home after coming 
coming out of these mines every day, and he would pitch to Mickey Mantle. He was building a baseball player. In fact, Mickey Mantle was named Mickey because he was named after another famous baseball player before him, who was Mickey Cochran, one of the great catchers of all time. And Mickey Mantle would always joke that uh, he was really happy that his dad didn't know that Mickey was a nickname for Mickey Cochran. Mickey Cochran's real name was Gordon. So uh, he didn't want to be a Gordon, and Mickey seemed to be right. But it was interesting that Mantle was a guy who was built to play baseball, whereas Joe DiMaggio, his parents didn't understand why Joe wanted to play baseball. They wanted him to go into the fishing trade and be, you know, just an upstanding American. But Mantle was going to be a baseball player from the moment he came into this world. There seems to be, Josh, an enormous amount of pressure on him when he rocks up at the Yankees, not least because of the jersey number they give him. So we have gone number three, Babe Ruth, number four, Lou Gehrig, number five... Joe DiMaggio, and Mickey is given number six, at least until things take a turn for the worst. Yeah, so just a little fun fact about baseball and numbers. Uh, In the era of Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig, your number represented where you hit in the lineup. So Babe Ruth, when he played with Lou Gehrig, Babe Ruth was the third hitter, uh, which in baseball, it's, it's a little different than cricket. In baseball, the third hitter is, and the fourth hitter are considered really your two best hitters because one and two are meant to get onto base in order to table set to have runners who you can then hit home. So that's why Ruth was number three, Gehrig was number four. Fast forward to when Joe DiMaggio comes along, they see him as the, you know, the future at the end of the Ruth Garrick era, so he's given number five. So it seemed to make sense that when Mickey Mantle came along and Joe DiMaggio was announcing in 1951 that he was going to retire, that they saw him as the future. Uh, Casey Stengel was the famous manager of the Yankees, and he was already touting him as the greatest player that he had ever seen. He said, it's not logical how good he was. So they did give him number six when he came into spring training. Tremendous amount of pressure. You're absolutely right, Tom, to to be told that you're going to walk in the footsteps of these, uh, you know, three of the greatest players to ever play the game, and you're 19 years old. And so he makes the team out of spring training as a rookie and does horribly. Well, he started off actually pretty well for the first uh, month or so, and then completely craters. Casey Stengel was heartbroken, but he sent him back down to Kansas City, which was the highest minor league affiliate. The way it works in in the major leagues is that you have minor league teams where you prepare yourself, sort of second-tier teams, and and the Yankees were in Kansas City at the time. And Mantle was so crestfallen that he performed horribly when he returned Mm. uh, to the minor leagues. He calls up his dad in tears and says, I can't do this. I'm going to quit. It's not going to happen for me. His dad drives five hours from Oklahoma to Kansas City. And rather than consoling his son, this was a a period of tough love, right? He said, I didn't think I raised a coward. Started packing his bag. So fine, let's go home. Uh, and, and, and shook Mantle tremendously because his dad had done everything for him. Mantle then did incredibly well for Kansas City to the point where he proved he deserved to be back in the major leagues. And then from then on, he was a major leaguer and one of the greats. He was a 20-time All-Star. Uh, that's a, a, an event that occurs midseason, a select side event. 20 times he was mm. an All-Star, which made him amongst uh, the, the greatest All-Stars of all time. I'm interested, Josh, in the fact that it took not only the Yankee crowd a little while to warm up to him, but also 
uh, some of his teammates were a little frosty. Joe DiMaggio never was that welcoming with him. Yeah, big time. And this goes back to talking about how they were sort of foils. That Joe DiMaggio was the fan, was the player for the greatest generation. And that's why in the Simon and Garfunkel song, uh, Mrs. Robinson, Where Have You Gone, Joe DiMaggio? It's sort of talking back to, the, to those halcyon days. I wouldn't call them halcyon days because actually they were very hard for the greatest generation, of course, World War II. And depression. And the depression. Yeah. But when you think about, you know, this person who represented that, the, that the stoic of the earth. Yeah. Exactly. Where have you gone? Where has that gone? Whereas Mantle was fun-loving and you both pointed out, and Katie, I think you mentioned it, that uh, perhaps fans didn't know how fun-loving he was, but the players certainly knew that yeah. he was going out every night, he was drinking, he was carousing, and Joe DiMaggio knew that that was part of his personality, that was part of Mickey Mantle's personality. He didn't like that, yeah. because for DiMaggio, even though he was a chain smoker and you know he had his own issues, he believed in respecting the game, and he saw Mantle as a guy who didn't respect the game, because right. he would go out and have fun. And so there was always that tension. That tension went all the way until they were both retired. The oh. two of them never talked. They would go to these old-timer games, and there was this belief by Joe DiMaggio and, and a lot of journalists fed this belief that he was the greatest living ball player even after he had retired. But really a lot of people felt that about Mickey Mantle. And I think that really graded on Joe DiMaggio because he saw himself as the guy who not only was a great player, he won nine World Series championships, but the guy who did it right. And that Mantle was a guy who, despite the fact he had success, left so much on the table. He got injured. He was always, you know, he wasn't always hungover. He said that he would never drink before games, but, you know, partied a little too hard. Yeah. And it really was, was a lost opportunity. And I think that frustrated DiMaggio. Yeah, I can see where Joe DiMaggio is coming from, because if you're always towing the party line and then you see this other guy being a little slapdash about his approach and still succeeding, that is really irritating. <laughs> yeah, and, and for Mantle's part, right, he saw... DiMaggio is a bit of a prude that, you know, yeah. hey, give me a break. I did my job. I was successful on the field. Right, right. And I'm also interested in the fact that Mickey Mantle was someone who was more visibly emotional on the field. He'd get upset and angry. He'd sort of throw his bat down. Was this considered taboo? Yeah. And again, this is sort of the, the, the prototype that the baby boomers looked at, which was before that, it was all about being stoic. And it was, uh, there was a great scene with Joe DiMaggio where after he flew out one time, he sort of kicked the dirt and everybody sort of held their breath at that because that was the most emotion he had ever shown on the field. <laughs> There's a great picture of Mickey Mantle throwing his helmet after he got out because he was so frustrated uh, with, with not succeeding in every single at bat. And it's important to make that point, right? That that despite Mantle being the partier, the carouser, all of that, he cared deeply about the performance of his team. He cared deeply about his own performance. But that ability to emote publicly, that was the start of, of really what we saw with the baby boomers and that generation when they started to hit the field, that we went from those players who were really happy to be there, head down, nose to the grindstone, to people who would show emotion with success uh, on the field, that they would throw their hands up in the air uh, and wave them like they just don't care, right? Like that they were, <laughs> you know, really excited. And, and Mantle was the start, the cusp of that period. 
1956 is his most stellar year, Josh, and that's why he probably he appears in We Didn't Start the Fire at this particular point. So can you paint one of your fantastic Josh pictures for Katie and me? If we were at Yankee Stadium in his Annus Mirabilis, what does he look like? when he's batting. He's five foot eleven, isn't he? And he's about he's, I mean all baseball players have muscle, but he's leanish muscle. What would it have been like as he came to the plate? Yeah, he's a guy who looked like he could have been on a basketball court or could have been on the football gridiron, the American football gridiron. He just had, he oozed athleticism. So when you saw him, you just knew there, there's a term in baseball that guy looks good when he gets off the bus. And that's really <laughs> safe for the people who are just physical specimens. I wish someone had said that about me once. <laughs> yeah, no one ever said Josh looked good when he got off the bus. Like, that guy's on the team. So uh, that, was, that was the thing about Mickey Mantle. He looked, you know, really good. He had that buzz cut. So he looked just, you know, country handsome. That would be the way I'd describe his looks. Mm. Uh, and no matter which side of the plate he came from, particularly in 1956, uh, the man did damage with a, a baseball bat. What he did that was so great that year, what was so memorable, is that he hit for what baseball uh, fans called the triple crown. Uh, and this, during this period, before the era of analytics and where we really sort of figure out ways to determine success, was the simple way to determine a, an incredible all-around player who could hit for average, which meant that he got base hits, he would get on base, but could also hit for power. So he led the American League that year in home runs in what's called runs batted in, and that was a, a statistic that reflects when you get a hit and a runner who is on base is able to score. And, and unlike cricket, where we really think about runs as the real determining factor of success for a, a, a cricket batter, runs batted in was considered a, a more important statistic because it was the ability to bring in other people to score. And then he also led in batting average. And that's only happened two times since then in the American League. That's how rare it is to be that dominant a player. Josh, when I've been reading about the length of these home runs, I'm trying to picture them in my head. So the longest one he hit, this is the one at, at Briggs Stadium, is it? So this is Tiger Stadium in Detroit. Um, just talk me through, because I've become a bit lost in the architecture of this stadium when I'm trying to picture how far this home run goes. Does it hit a part of the stadium and then everyone spends months after just trying to work out how far it would have gone if it had flown free? Yes, exactly. Uh, you know, when you hit the upper facade of a stadium, it prevents the ball from reaching its final destination. And with Mickey Mantle, because he hit again, another baseball terminology, tape measure shots, where you really should be pulling out the tape measure. You need like about 32 of them, right? End-to-end uh, -to, -end to probably get to where those uh, home runs would go. There, it was often a discussion of where would this have actually landed? And what's interesting today with baseball is that we now have all these cameras and you can actually determine where it would have landed. But back then, it was great bar fodder, right? You'd get a pint, you'd sit down, you'd discuss. Uh, there was always a great story about Joe DiMaggio when he actually came to Italy uh, to, to play uh, in a, an exhibition and he hit a home run and they said that it ended up on a train, you know, <laughs> that it went over the fence and into a train and so it was the longest home run because it kept cheating. on going. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's cheating. But yeah, exactly. I mean, the thing about Mickey Mantle was that his home runs uh, were so amazing, so far flung. You know, it captures the imagination. 
anybody who is a superlative in, in some aspect of what they do captures the imagination. And there was no power hitter. And there were some great power hitters during this era, but none that did it in the way that Mickey Mantle probably did it. Well, that has certainly put some jut in my strut. Um, before I get too carried away, Tom, I think I need to just take a little breather and uh, hitch my wagon to some ads. Sports stars. They're like superheroes. But they're actually real. Which is why we've made a podcast about them. You see... They've all got a story. But too many of these stories were cut short. Colby Bryant. Payne Stewart. Flo jo, Phil Hughes. Justin Fashion You. We're writing episodes about all of them. And sadly, many more. Death of a Sports Star. A new series from Crowd Network. <laughs> He was confronted pretty early on while he was still a teenager with his dad's uh, fatal illness. And also, didn't his brother and uncle also die of Hodgkin's? They all had this uh, the same cancer. Yeah, his grandfather as oh, well. His grandfather. Uh, and, th- and this was all probably just the fact that they, w- they all worked in the mines and uh, were breathing in lead and all sorts. But Mickey himself uh, had this idea that maybe he was next. I I don't know that he necessarily understood that this was a disease that they had uh, that was inflicted because of their line of work. And did he always have this idea that he could be next and he was potentially doomed? And uh, is that maybe the reason why he was acting out and, you know, such a party animal? Absolutely. He's famed for the line, I would have taken better care of myself if I had have known I was going to live this long uh, near the end of his life. And I don't know if that's a, a fair you know, excuse because he paid the price, but also people around him paid the price. I mean, he was famous of not, he didn't go out alone, right? He would bring his entourage and he would bring his teammates with him. Uh, most famously, Whitey Ford, who was a Hall of Fame pitcher and the best pitcher during those Yankee years of, of the 50s and 60s. And then a guy named Billy Martin, who was a really famous character, not as good as Ford and Mantle, a little diminutive second baseman, uh, infielder, who would go on to be a, a pretty successful manager. And he would get up to no good with these guys. Yeah. So he brought his teammates along with him. And it was funny because uh, Yogi Berra, who was another very famous player, famous for yogiisms, would say these aphorisms that were completely broken, didn't make any sense. Uh, you know, uh, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical, things like that. Just really silly statements. And a guy named Hank Bauer. And Bauer and Berra would only go out on nights where it was wives nights because they knew that when the wives were gone the trouble that that ford and mantle and martin would get into would be terrible and there was a a famous story and this speaks also to this era too this story where there was a birthday party at the copacabana very famous nightclub in new york uh, in which they got drunk mantle would be somewhat surly when he was drunk got into a fight but everyone whitewashed it so, you know, the police let him go, even though he got into a fight. Uh, the media let him go. And this was an era, and probably the end of an era, of when media would n- totally turn a blind eye to yeah. what players would do on the field. And that was also really bad for Mickey, right? I yeah. think that if people had called him out on it, he may have turned a corner a little earlier. 
but all the journalists who probably were drinking a lot too during that period uh, let him go and, and that sort of helped feed that belief a, that he could do it, B, that he was invincible, uh, and C, that he didn't have to worry about it. Yeah, and I mean, he did mention to friends along the way that he had a fear of death, but it seemed like this fear of death almost turned into a little preemptive death wish because he was squandering his talent with the boozing, with the partying, and uh, he was a total absent dad. He had a, he'd married his childhood sweetheart who was back in Dallas with his four sons and uh, who, I guess they all developed an enthusiasm for alcohol because they needed to self-medicate. So he ended up with a, a drunk wife and four drunk kids. Yeah, well, I mean, a part of that was Mickey's fault. Because Mickey was a codependent and he needed people who he was going to take along with him down that rabbit hole of alcoholism. And he brought his wife with him. I mean, his wife knew that Mickey was a carouser. And I think that that was uh, to numb the pain of how bad that relationship was. But for the kids, it was, if I want to hang with my dad, this is how I hang with my dad. And, you know, Mickey Mantle Jr. died prematurely. I think it's very fascinating for all the differences that Joe DiMaggio and Mickey Mantle had. Both of their sons died prematurely, had strained relationships with their fathers. And I think to a certain extent, we see this with very historic figures that they see the world all throughout their own lens, that it's all about them. And it's incredibly hard to be the child of of someone who is so famous and so popular because you you feel like you're never going to attain that level of success. And the parents seem so distant because they're giving to their fans, and uh, particularly this was true with Mickey Mantle in later life when he became uh, this figure in the memorabilia world. Yeah. But uh, that was one of the reasons, I think, that, uh, you know, both of them had children who uh, tragically died early as well. And also, I'm curious about the fact that why didn't the Yankees take better care of their so-called investment by keeping an eye on him? I mean, he was clearly troubled. Um, Or is this naive of me to think that they would have this sort of paternalistic view of like trying to keep him out of trouble or did they try to keep him out of trouble? Well, I, I think it was sort of the, the, the man's man era, okay, right? right. If, if you could, you know, put down five whiskeys in the evening and come out and hit two home runs the next day. What's the well, problem? You, you, exactly. You yeah. were all the more impressive. Okay. And Casey Stengel, the manager, did have rules, but the rules didn't apply to Mickey Mantle okay. because, again, if you could perform, if that was part of his process, then you <laughs> yeah. weren't going to question it. Okay. When he was out on the town, Josh, what sort of places would his fame game him entry to? Is he in all the best clubs in New York? Is he being fated by other celebrities, by film stars, by by stars of the musical world? Yeah, I mean, this was part of the problem, Tom. Again, we talk about uh, the enabling process, and we mentioned the media, and we mentioned the team. But the world around him wanted to be part of the party that was Mickey Mantle. He was a guy who would go out, and he never paid for a drink. Uh, that's the irony, right, of famous people, is that they end up being the cheapest people because they become <laughs> these folks who expect everyone else to pick up the tab. And that was certainly the case with Mickey Mantle at, at the height of his career. Now, he would go to other places, too. I mean, famously, he was a, a fan of the Stage Deli, this really famous deli in New York, and knew the owners there, as did Joe DiMaggio. So uh, there wasn't a place that was known in New York that Mickey Mantle couldn't go to. And, and this was New York of the 50s. I mean, this was just the center of the world in a sense. You know, post-war America was at its height 
And its capital, not literal capital, which was Washington, D.C., but its cultural capital was New York City. And here you are, the toast of the town, in the biggest place in the world at this time. Uh, you know, the world was his oyster, and he certainly slurped it down. <laughs> I'm interested that Mickey Mantle evidently never came to grips with the extent of the hero worship. And sometimes he'd be downright hostile to these worshipful fans when they approached him. And I was wondering, what's going on there, Josh? Do you think it's a little bit of self-loathing or that he didn't, he felt like he didn't deserve it? I mean, or, you know, did he hear his dad's voice in his ear that he could do better? Um, Because it's just interesting. Today, I think people take for granted that they understand if if they've achieved something in their career, if they're an entertainer, uh, if they're somehow notable, they understand they have a platform and that, you know, they're an influencer in some respect. But he just seemed angry when people came up to him. Yeah, I think, you know, the thing about arrogance is that where does arrogance come from? Does it come from a true belief in oneself or a fear that you're an right. imposter? Right. And I think that that was the case with Mickey Mantle, that he was certainly fighting about that tension within himself. But what's fascinating and sort of ironic about it is that he leveraged that love for himself, even if he could be rude, into a second career. And I, I mentioned the memorabilia. He was lucky enough that he had the aforementioned baby boomers who saw him as uh, the height of a nostalgic figure who were coming of age, or more than a come of age, but were sort of in that age of wealth in the 1980s when the idea that collecting baseball cards as an adult didn't seem like a juvenile <laughs> fantasy. And getting autographs was okay for a 30 or 40-year-old. And so Mantle would go to these card shows where people would sell baseball cards and he would sign autographs and he would sign baseballs and he made a massive living off of this element and it's really interesting to think now his baseball card when he was a rookie in his first year 1952 tops mickey mantle is the most valuable baseball card in the world one sold during the pandemic for $5.2 million. (laughs) Now, there are others, the card is scarce. And so, you know, scarcity has an impact on it. But if there was a player whose card was as scarce and the name Mickey Mantle wasn't on it, it wouldn't go for $5.2 million. Mm. So even to this day, that nostalgia has fed the myth that is Mickey Mantle. And so you can understand why he was able to feed off of it and help pay the bills later in life, even though he might have thought, oh, these people are all a bunch of rubes that they think I'm someone great and I'm just a guy. Katie, when you see footage of the Mick, Mickey Mantle, in this period in the 80s, there's two different things I think you see. You see, in some ways, a man of great physical strength who's gone to seed because you can see the effects of the drinking Mm. on his face and you hear stories about how truculent he could be and how unpleasant he could be to people who would come up and just be awestruck but at the same time as you see all that negative stuff he's still got that little twinkle in his eye and when he smiles he's got such a sort of goofy country boy grin that it's really hard not still to be charmed yeah he's kind of disarming isn't he and he goes through so many different phases i mean josh you mentioned the arrogance and of course you can't really avoid that if he's one of the elite athletes of of the world but my god he comes up against 
his own uh, failings and humility uh, by the time his uh, Yankees career grinds to a close because the the injuries start piling on and and what happens there because he he wants to go out in a high but it doesn't exactly happen that way does it yeah i mean one of the things that really haunted him in his career is that there is a there are a lot of magic numbers in baseball baseball is a sport defined by numbers one of them is hitting 300 that means you get three hits out of every 10 at bats when you play and that's considered a magic number and at the end of his career in 1968, he was right on the cusp of that for his career. You kind of want to finish your career hitting over 300. But he had a tough season. The last three seasons were really tough. But that season brought his average down below 300 for his career. And that was always a big heartbreak for him, for any athlete, no matter uh, you know what your level is to have that reckoning at the end of your career where you're not the best you can be, whatever that best is, is terrible. But when your whole identity, when you were born to play baseball, as Mickey Mantle was, when you were named to play baseball, when your dad gave his life for you to play baseball and you can't do it anymore, it's certainly a moment where you ask yourself, what's the point moving on? Yeah, so around that time, post-Yankees, he's frittering around with various businesses and projects. There's increasing bitterness, uh, more drinking, of course, trying to reconnect with his estranged sons by drinking with them and uh, cashing in on the memorabilia craze. But he seems he seems a little lost, um, and he ends up going to rehab, which gives him a second chance to recover his dignity and self-respect. And this must have been, um, I mean, for a man, number one, for a man to admit that, you know, he's weak, that's already a big hurdle to, to cross, but also he's an elite athlete and he's from the mid-century era. So there's all of these vulnerabilities that he has to admit. I mean, give us a sense of of how low he must have been to consider going to the Betty Ford Clinic. I think he was quite low. I mean, he was paunchy at this point. He had that that swell of an alcoholic, and he knew his health was starting to fade. And I think that that probably scared him because he was very fearful of death. And he finally had come to the conclusion: I've easily outlived my father and my grandfather and other family members, and maybe I need to try and pull it together so that I can have some type of living that is worth living. It was also an era where that was becoming more commonplace. I mean, Betty Ford Clinic is so famous, but part of the reason it's famous is not only because Betty Ford was uh, the first lady married to Gerald Ford, but because she was one of the first high-profile people to admit to alcoholism and to publicly stand out and say, this is a disease that needs to be fought. And right after that period, you saw more and more celebrities having a willingness to confront that disease. And I think that that made it easier for Mickey Mantle to do that. There's no way you do that in the 60s or the 70s because it was considered an embarrassment not to be able to control your drink. Going back to when he was a Yankee great, the reason the Yankees let him do it because they said, oh, he can control it. But to suggest that you couldn't, it was an embarrassment up until probably about the 80s when the Betty Ford Clinic became big and when a number of other celebrities were doing it. So I think that the change in time helped him be able to make that transition. So rehab did give him a second chance, and it also seemed to kind of uh, give him a generosity of spirit where he finally realized his place in the world and how he actually could give back the love and the support that he'd been given his whole life. 
Well, what it did was give him purpose. Yeah. And he would go out and he would uh, talk about the ills and the dangers and, and the evils of drinking. And he really became a, a very vocal uh, spokesperson for temperance and for dealing with alcoholism. And he had such a, a compelling personal story that he certainly probably helped people along the way. But the damage was already done at that point. And so uh, he had a, a reasonably short period where he was able to go out and, and to be a spokesperson on this issue. But then his organs began to fail, and most notably his liver. And he ended up in the hospital. He needed a liver transplant. And unfortunately, it made no difference. His cancer immediately spread to the uh, new liver throughout all his organs. And he passed away quite quickly, though he became somewhat of a born-again Christian on his deathbed, uh, trying to look for something uh, probably to, to explain it all for him. Because here he was, the guy who was the superstar, who had lived it all, uh, and now he was on his deathbed. His father had died when he was young. And, and, you know, he was a country boy. And I think it was very hard for him to take in everything that had happened in his life right there at the end. There is such potency, Katie, in the way he is towards the end when he says this man who has been a hero for generations of kids and a man who is an object of obsession for those kids when they grow up, whose final few words are, don't be like me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's very poignant. Uh, that really packs a punch, doesn't it? Yeah, the thing about Mickey Mantle, if you look back on his life, is that uh, he was a man-child for so long, yeah. right? That he had no filter, he could do anything he wanted, and if people let you do what you want, it's hard to mature. I mean, part of the maturation process is being told no <laughs> and confronting that and being a better person. He never had to do that. But as he got later in life, he was forced to do that through health and, and the issues that he confronted with his family. And that allowed him to mature right at the end. You don't want to ever say it's too little too late. The opportunity to be able to reckon with that at any point before you leave this planet uh, is something that's important. Uh, but it is, again, tragic that it took him right to the end for him to appreciate that aspect. When he dies in August 95, how does America react then, Josh? Because it's in between, it's a sort of strange era for his former sport. It comes after the great strikes, the lost season. It comes before that great home run battle between Mark McGuire and Sammy Sosa that turns out in the long term to be fueled by something else. So how does America react at the time? Because baseball was going through the grips of labour strife right as he was passing away, for fans of baseball, you really clinged all the more tightly to the periods of the golden years of the sport. And Mickey Mantle exemplified the golden years. So his departure was heartbreaking for, for so many because of, of what he represented. He represented a period uh, when baseball was so muscular on the American land landscape. And so it was, it was a huge heartbreak. It was a huge heartbreak for, for, again, for the baby boomers that, oh my God, Mickey Mantle has passed away. That's my childhood and my childhood is dying. So it was really hard uh, for so many. It, it was meaningful. I think also the fact that, you know, not only is it that reminder for a generation that none of us are immortal, but he in particular was so godlike, you know, as somebody described him as a warrior, you can't imagine that somebody like that would pass on, would crumble, would not be this infinite source of energy. 
Absolutely. And so he lives on, right? He lives on in his baseball card that's selling for $5.2 million. <laughs> I think back to, yeah. to Seinfeld. There's a famous Seinfeld episode. I know this is now a little dated. George Cazanza wants to name his kid as he's uh, about to get married, uh, his ill-fated marriage. Uh, seven after Mickey Mantle. And we mentioned that when he came up to the majors, he was number six. When he came back to the majors after the minor league uh, stint, he was number seven. And that was an iconic number for him. I mean, it was really what defined him was his number seven. And uh, yeah, George Cassano wanted to name his kid seven after the Mick. Uh, Josh Chetwin, thank you so much for bringing another baseball legend to life. And you're going to be joining us again in, what, I think seven episodes for the California baseball theme. Uh, I love it. That's where I'm from. I grew up in Los Angeles. So uh, look forward to it. Okay, wonderful. Thanks so much, Josh. Cheers. Take care, guys. (laughs) Katie, has anyone said of you that you look good Getting off the bus. <laughs> I know I felt good getting off That's the bus. That's all that matters. <laughs> That's all that matters. Um, I like this idea about the bus being the portal of entry <laughs> into any number of erotic adventures. Is it because a bus is so humdrum and often a little bit smelly that if you can look good getting off a bus, you can look good coming off anything? It, uh, well, there is that to it, but of course it is the bus that is carrying the team to the away game. So that's all that's going on there. But I quite like the idea of me just getting off a double-decker bus in central London and having heads turn, having those little coconut heads swivel. A nod of approval. Mm. <laughs> yeah, just to kind of like... <laughs> of approval. <laughs> <laughs> this feels like one that Billy was always going to stick in the song. We know how obsessed he is yeah. with, with Wackabat. And Mickey was clearly a hero for boys of his age growing up across the land. He would be sued for malpractice by Josh Chetwin for a start if he didn't include Mickey Mantle I think it's obvious it does deserve a place in the song Agreed Katie Um, where are we going next week? Next week we're diving deep into the world of the beat generation via the man known as Kerouac Jack (gasps) Kerouac on the road Huge news Huge news lots of jazzy beboppy poetry built into that prose that sentence needed to be four times as long, Casey, and without any punctuation to reflect his style. Um, that's one to look forward to if you would like another podcast to listen to. In the meantime, let's recommend Death of a Sports Star. These are the immersive tales of the sports superstars that we loved and lost too early. People like Kobe Bryant, Flojo, and Diego Maradona. To find it, just search for Death of a Sports Star in all your usual podcast places. <laughs> Crowd Network, a place where you belong. Ever yearned for the perfect pub to reveal itself from some unexpected alley? Well, The Moon Underwater is the podcast for you. Join me, John Robbins, and the lovely Robin Allender Hi. as we help a special guest create their dream pub. From the drinks behind the bar to the music on the jukebox, The Moon Underwater is whatever you want it to be. So, if you would like to join us in Desire's beating heart, search The Moon Underwater. Or maybe The Moon Underwater will search for you. 
I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.